0: This episode of the two-man power trip of wrestling is sponsored by Blue Chew. Let's talk about something we could all use more of right now. That's right. Sex. Great sex. Guys, now you can increase your performance and get extra confidence in the bed. Listen up. BlueChew.com is the place to go. That's right. Blue. Like the color blue. Blue Chew brings you the first chewable with the same FDA-approved ingredients as Viagra and Cialis. If you could benefit from more confidence right where it counts, Blue Chew is the fast and easy way to enhance your performance. Right now, we've got a special deal for our listeners. Visit BlueChew.com and get your first shipment free. That's right. When you use the promo code EMPIRE, you pay just $5 shipping. Again, that's blue com. the promo code EMPIRE, to try it for free. That's right. BlueChew.com. Use the promo code Empire.
1: The upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production.
0: What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal A.J. Styles. You're listening to the Two Man Power Trip. Hi, folks. I'm WWE Hall of Famer, Hacksaw, and Duggan. If you'd like hearing
2: knock-knock jokes or jokes about your grandmother, go somewhere else! Oh!
3: Oh, my God! This is Joey Styles, and you're listening to the Two Man Power Trip
0: podcast. This is Cody Rhodes, and you are listening to Two Man Power Trip. Good. How you doing, Chad? Hey, Johnny. Cool, man. What's going on? We ready to go or what? Okay.
3: Uh, this is a uh, special visitor the hardcore legend, Mick Foley. It
2: was a very rough feud to go through with Rick. It was a very bitter feud, too. He certainly didn't like me at that time, and I didn't like him, and we were both trying to
3: be at the top. I don't do many wrestling shows anymore, probably because I'm a bit ignorant. You guys probably know 10 times more than I do.
0: Look, me Jean, Gene, I can't beat beat. I'm the greatest of all time. And I would say that. And every kid I they knew they could kick the shit
3: out of me. At this point, well, I'll be at a signing and little kids will come up to me and throw up the click sign or talk about, oh, your ladder match with Sean at WrestleMania 10. I go, wait a minute, you weren't even a glimmer in your dad's eye. But yeah, bro, it's really flattering and,
0: and amazing and humbling. Great talking to you guys. It's been your pleasure. <laughs> They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied
3: thousands of hours of wrestling. And now they bring to you the greatest legends Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars
0: of pro wrestling. They are
3: Primetime Pod and Chad the Two Man! He promised us su- a surprise. We'll get to that in just one moment. Let's get to the rumor, though, Jacques Rougeau. Word is you're going to be putting up a for sale sign on a lot of your home in Montreal, Quebec, Canada, and actually moving here to the United States. Is that true or false? Isn't that great? Is that well, let's go ahead and clear this once and for all. Let's face the facts. Ever since we said we were going to move to the beautiful place of United States of America, our garages have been full of mail piling up and ever since we told you about the 1-800 fabulous toll-free number our phones have been ringing and you know what they've been saying oh,
1: What? Oh i yeah. can imagine Did what they they saying
3: they've been saying please fabulous rujo brothers Move next to my house and be my neighbor! Do you think he's Mr. Rogers now? Won't you be my neighbor? Let's you the surprise. You promised us a big surprise. Just what is this big surprise, Raymond? Well, you know, since we've been in such great demand all over the world, the, part, the contracts have been piling up so much, we don't seem to have the time to get to them. So obviously, we needed managerial assistance, and you know we've been telling you, beautiful people, how much we really love you. Well, we're going to prove it to you. We have chosen one of yours Choosen? to manage us. For the foreigners. Who have you chosen? We have chosen the most fabulous manager in the world today let us introduce him to you jimmy hart oh no that's right come on out jimmy oh come on out. no now that's about as american as you can get to the bottom of this well, that's a surprise all right to the heart foundation i'll tell you that jimmy but it's not hart a good one manager tag team. What? manager and still have a contract of the Hart Foundation. I still own a piece of their contract, but I am going public. That's right. I am going public with this announcement because of Jacques and Ramon, the fabulous Rougeau brothers. I am going to give you personally 50, 50 shares of the Hart Foundation's contract. Wow. That means the rougeaux will you know make money off the hearts. That means every night you will get paid double. Double. Oh, Let I me tell you something. This hearts has, has never been, been done, just done like before. Summer Slamming I am going to tell the Fabulous Rouge Brothers everything I know about you. I am going to squeal like a canary. (laughs) I'm going to tell them all of your strong points. And you don't have very many strong points. And I am going to tell them all of your weaknesses. And believe you me, they have a lot of weaknesses. And I promise you this, Heart Foundation, you will never, ever become World Wrestling Federation. Team champions again! Long live the Rujo brother! All right, the big news—the Rujo brother, happy back! USA, USA, USA! I can't believe Uh, it! We'll be back! We'll
1: be back!
0: Hello and welcome to another a two man power trip of wrestling a flagship interview episode, a part of the two man power trip of wrestling's podcasting empire. I am your host J P John Paz, and of course, this episode today is with an absolute wrestling legend, Raymond Rougeau from the infamous Rougeau wrestling family course, everyone probably remembers Raymond Rougeau, part of the Fabulous Rougeau Brothers, along with his brother Jacques Rougeau Jr., and if you didn't know, Jacques Rougeau Sr. was also a legendary professional wrestler, really, in Montreal, Quebec, Canada, an absolute god, as was his brother Johnny Rougeau, who is the uncle of Raymond and Jacques, but really, the focus of the interview today is primarily on Raymond and what his career was all about and his kind of run through wrestling when he started out at a very, very young age, got trained a bit by his father and then uh, you know a group of others, and how he kind of slowly went through the wrestling business and really, really kind of made his name for himself and made it easier for his brother Jacques to have a successful career in wrestling as well, since Raymond is the older brother by about five years or so. So really... The big part in, of the interview that we really focus on is that WWF time. I think that that's just a part everybody kind of remembers so fondly, and they just love that time period, that golden era of wrestling, the the Hulk Hogan era, the Rock and wrestling era, when the Russo brothers entered into the WWF in 1986, and really for about two years had a, a babyface run that was just filled with great tag team matches like great matches against the Hart Foundation or the Moondogs or the Funks and just many just great tag team matches that they had but it was like, what are they doing? You know, where are they going with them? Where can they go from here? And, you know, they did have a almost WWF World Tag Team title win as baby faces in 1987 in Montreal, Canada. So it was one of those things where like, oh, they kind of teased it and it was great. And the crowd loved it. And they were tag team champions, unrecognized tag team champions for a, a little bit of time. But obviously the titles were awarded back to the Hart Foundation once they figured out that they used Jimmy Hart's microphone, interfere in in the finish of the match, and they changed it. But we learn, obviously, this was all concocted very ingeniously by Pat Patterson, who ran the idea by Vince, and the Rougeau brothers loved it. But it was kind of one of those bittersweet moments where it was such a cool feeling that night and the people of Montreal were nuts, but they never actually won the WWF tag team titles for real. So kind of just an unrecognized tag team champions. So... We do talk about kind of when they were supposed to win it as heels later on in 1989, or was it going to be 1988? It was kind of uh, one of those things was kind of up in the air, but they were scheduled to win the tag titles at one point, and we do talk about it, that in the interview and kind of how he felt about it, and did they really need it? But, and more getting into kind of the other meat and potatoes of the interview, we do talk about the... Established Rougeau Brothers as a heel team and when they do turn heel about two years into their WWF run and how awesome that turn was and the All-American Boys theme song, being from Memphis, being with Jimmy Hart, being those crazy heels with the Great color, you know, that that great kind of teal color of those capes and those jackets, and really just kind of being smarmy, sarcastic, patronizing heels. And that was just so awesome. And I think everybody remembers the fabulous Rougeau brothers. They just had kind of just amazing matches with guys, again, hard foundations this time. They both flipped. The hard foundations were the baby faces, they were the heels, the Killer Bees, the Bushwhackers then of course the rockers and we talk about having quote-unquote marathon matches aka iron man matches with them and how great those matches were so i mean i think you're really really going to enjoy this one as part of the epic series we go a little bit longer in this one which is the parts and the interviews that i absolutely love when we're able to do that so i mean there's just so much cool little uh, tidbits and, and little nuggets in this interview even talking about his WWE run today doing French commentary from 2017 and still being under contract to do the French commentary today for the WWE Network. And then a little nugget about a 1996 boxing match against Owen Hart in Montreal for the WBF. So there's some really, really great stuff in this interview. You do not want to miss a minute of it. But before I send you on over to some two-man power trip of wrestling business, and send it on over to the interview. Just want to also mention some other podcasts a part of the two-man power trip of wrestling's podcasting empire. We have Kevin Sullivan's Castmaster Talks, which is on the Creative Control Network. We have Dr. Tom Pritchards taking you to school, which is on our TMPT feed. We have Shane Douglas's Triple Threat Podcast, which is available on Ventruso's The Brand. We also have Rick Bassman's Talking Tough, which is available on Podcast One. And of course, last, certainly not least, the University of Dutch with Dutch Mantel over on the MLW radio network. So without any further ado, let's send it on over to a former NWF World Junior Champion, a former unrecognized WWF World Tag Team Champion, of course, a member of the infamous fabulous Rougeau Brothers. He is Raymond Rougeau. And now for some TMPT business. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Two Man Power Trip and at Razzlin Pal. Subscribe to us on YouTube. Also subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. Please leave us a review. We would love to hear your feedback. Check out the feed for awesome past episodes including Bruno Martino, Sean Mike, Dusty Rhodes, Jerry Lawler, Terry Funk, Goldberg, Ray Mysterio Jr., Arn Anderson, and Glenn Kane Jacobs, and so many more. Why are on the web? Visit ProWrestlingTees.com. Yes, that is ProWrestlingTeys.com. Visit our store, visit JJ dillon's store, Francine Store, and of course, the franchise Shane Douglas store. For all you Android users out there, find us on Google Play and Player fm for all you iOS users, check us out on TuneIn Radio, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Automatic, and now Stitcher. And of course, check out the Empire. Yes, that is the TMPT Empire now. TMPTEmpire.com for all the latest and greatest on the two-man power trip of wrestling. Right now is a former NWF World Junior Champion, technically an unrecognized former WWE World Tag Team Champion, one half of the fabulous Rougeau Brothers, and of course, a member of the infamous Rougeau Wrestling Family. He is, of course, Raymond Rougeau. Welcome to the two-man power trip of wrestling.
2: Thank you very much, John. Uh, Glad to be with you.
0: Now, like I said, part of the legendary Rougeau Wrestling Family. What have you kind of been up to lately? What's been going on in your world?
2: Oh, actually, well, uh, I've been for the last uh, three and a half years. I've been back with the WWE, doing the uh, French commentary for the WWE Network on all the pay-per-views. So uh, basically, when I stopped wrestling at the end of '89, I became a TV announcer commentator for the WWF back then, for uh, from '89 until 2002, and then in 2002. Uh, the French contract had stopped in uh, Europe, so I just completely retired, and uh, from there became a, a city councillor in the, in the city where I live. I was approached by uh, the person that was going to run for mayor and asked if I'd, be, if I'd be interested in being part of her team as a city councillor. So after uh, reflecting on it and uh, thinking about it, I said, oh, it'd be a nice challenge. I always enjoy challenges in my life. And uh, so I accepted, and I was elected in 2002, and right now I'm still a city councillor. This is my fifth term, fifth consecutive term as councillor, and uh, I'm the deputy mayor of the municipality of the city where I live. I've been deputy mayor for the last six and three-quarter years. And basically uh, last week, uh, it just came out in the paper that I'm – considering running for mayor at the next uh, election here, which is November 2021. So in 14, 15 months from now, uh, I'm contemplating running for mayor in the city where I live. Wow.
0: That's very cool. Yeah. (laughs) What do you think about the, you know, the political career and kind of that vein? I, I love it.
2: Actually, when I, when I started a political career
0: in 2002,
2: uh, when I was approached, I wasn't sure if I was interested in doing it. Um, I didn't have any political inclinations, but at the same time, I figured it would be a good challenge. So I, I said, well, I'll try it. And if if I get elected, <clears throat> basically, uh, I'll do my, my term. It's a four-year term. And if at the end of my four-year term, I don't like it, then I'll just not, uh, not run again at the next election, go home, just say I tried it, didn't like it. But... We could say fortunately or unfortunately or fortunately, uh, I was vaccinated by it. I, I developed the passion for it. Uh, the thing is, what I enjoy about um, municipal politics is it's the level of government where you're the closest to the citizens that you live with in your, in your city. <clears throat> so basically, the decisions that we make, we see a direct impact on the quality of life and on the... You know, on our environment where we live, because we touch everything—infrastructures, developments, uh, roads, uh, whatnot—we t- we touch everything. And I find also it's um, it's a nice um, <clears throat> intellectual challenge because you have to learn about everything. Like I always said, a, uh, a city official, a city official, a city councillor you know a bit about everything, but you're, you're not a specialist anywhere. You know, like we, we talk about the developing new roads. I know how basically the foundations go and this and that, but I couldn't go and build a road for you uh, as far as uh, developing new uh, apartment buildings and, you know, infrastructures and stuff like that. I know, <clears throat> I know a lot of, but then again, I'm not an architect and I'm not an engineer. So, and we have to make, we make, we make decisions, um, sometimes multi-million dollar decisions. So we have to get all the information from lawyers, architects, and whatnot, engineers. And then, you know, we make decisions whether we accept, whether we modify what they're doing or request that they modify it. So it, there's it, there's always something that's challenging. You're always thinking. You're always con- uh, consulting with, you know, like I said, professionals. So you're always gaining new information so that's basically what I like about uh, the municipal politics.
0: And you also mentioned coming back to the WB announce table, so to speak, doing French commentary back in 2017, a part of the WB network. How did that kind of come about? How did you get asked to come back? Yeah, well, basically, um, like I said, in 2002,
2: the contract we had in France uh, the terminated. There was nothing left in French and uh, at that time i was about right for it also cause, you know i'd been on the road a lot traveling and this and that and um, so basically it it was a welcome welcome time in my life just to come back home sit down and not have to, to go to the airport every week or every 3 days to fly somewhere <clears throat> so for for 15 years i was just away from it in 2016 i got a call <clears throat> from uh, stanford Asking, like, because the WWE Network had just got into France, and France and Belgium and whatnot. <clears throat> so they asked me if I'd be, if I'd consider uh, coming back to do the French commentary, actually with my broadcast partner that I had done it with for years, Jean Brassard. And um, I was like, wow. And uh, my first question was, what's the schedule? <laughs> you know. So basically, uh, I spoke with the producer, and he told me, right. He says, you, you come out, you do one pay-per-view a month. So basically, we're doing 12 a year. So you'll work 12 times a year. So once a month, we'll fly you out on a Saturday to the city where the pay-per-view will be at. Sunday, you do the show. And then Monday, you fly back home, and you're off until the next month. I said, well, that's a, that's a schedule I can live with. And at the same time, I never lost the passion of uh, the WWE. I never lost the passion of the business. So for me, it was a, a, let's say, it was a very interesting uh, situation where I could still be implicated in a business that I still love and I'm still passionate about, and at the same time, balancing it out with a quality of life. So um, we started in 2016, we had spoken. Uh, I just mentioned at that point, though, I said, uh, you'll need to get me working papers again to come into the States. Because I didn't have any more uh, working papers for the state. So they said, okay, we'll have our attorneys start working on it at that point. This was the fall of 2016. Um, Actually, they spoke to me in the summer of 2016. In the fall of 2016, I got my working papers. Everything was in order and I could have started. But there was a a bit of a problem with the station that was airing the uh, broadcasting the shows in France because WWE had been selling their shows to a certain station in France for years, and uh, they weren't too pleased that the WWE Network was going to come into France and also now start broadcasting the pay-per-views in French with us, because they already had a station that was buying the pay-per-view, and they had their local broadcasters that were broadcasting it. So they had to work that legal issue out with them. In the spring of 2017, the contract came... uh, Came due to expiration with the uh, the French Channel, and uh, in the renegotiation of the new contract, well, just say it was not an option that that we were that Jean and I were going to start broadcasting all the pay per views on the WWE network in French. So they renewed the contract, but it was also, like I said, added that the WWE network will be broadcasting the pay-per-views in French. So actually my first show when I came back was in July of 2017 and it was in Dallas, Texas, uh, great balls of fire pay-per-view. That was the first one I was back.
0: what did you think about that pay-per-view? Was that a good return, like a good time to return? I think it was, it was a Smojo against Brock Lesnar main event. Yep. Was that a, <laughs> uh, was that a fun oh, pay-per-view to return to?
2: Basically, um, as soon as, as soon as I had agreed, like, yes, I, w- I wanted to come back, I would have started at any any one of the pay-per-views. I was just waiting for all these uh, legal issues to get settled. So when we got the go-ahead for the first one, uh, basically I was coming back after 15 years, you know, and diving back into it. And um, it was, for me, any pay-per-view would have been great. But this one, for me, was super. You know, I'd go to Dallas. We had a great show, sold out. And then they're back behind the... Uh, Commentator's desk Calling the life play, play by play Life was good again You know Steve Winwood The song Back in the high life again
0: Oh yeah Great that's, song
2: That's exactly The way I felt And I listened to that song Many times You know In the upcoming weeks Before the show And it felt like I was just Coming back Into the high life again And it felt Really good So I was really excited About going to Dallas Excited to do the show Excited To find Sean again You know, because him and I were broadcast partners for, uh, oh, basically eight, nine years, 10 years before, you know, before I stopped. And uh, we saw each other again in France. Eight years later, I was invited to France. And so was he. Um, We were there for an autograph signing. And they asked us. There was a a local show there that night. They asked John I if we do the play-by-play live but it wasn't televised. It was for the building, the people there. So that was the first time in eight years that I'd come back, and the first time in eight years that I'd uh, seen Jean again. So we had a blast. That was 2010. And then all of a sudden, 2017, we're behind the mics again. It was like, wow, life is good.
0: What do you think about the current wrestling? Boy, has it changed in those many, many years you weren't there, right? It changed a lot, right?
2: It evolved, uh, but then again... I've seen a lot of involvement uh, in the WWE, even from when I joined in 1986. Actually, when I joined the WWE in 86, I had come from, you know, uh, Quebec and the wrestling elsewhere. Wrestling was different. WWE was a lot more entertainment, you know, with the music coming in. I wasn't used to that. So I adapted to that. And then I evolved over the years with the WWE. And then when I became an interviewer, broadcaster, I also evolved for 13 years. So for me, to to see an evolution, it wasn't a shock or something like that. The only thing was, for a while, I had completely disconnected. And then when, when I found out I was coming back, I started watching all the shows again just to get back into it and to find out who was there. And I did research just for background, And I said, wow, it has evolved. But at the same time, I enjoyed the uh, evolution of it because they have some good workers. You know, it wasn't like at one point where it was all short matches like on TV and this and that, and you know, three, four-minute squash matches or whatnot. You're having good matches. And I was impressed with the level of talent that they had. And what you know what really... um, blew me over was the the evolution of the women because when I had left it was only the beginning of the women's evolution and stuff, you know, it was more like the divas, you know, and stuff like that. When I came back, they had really women wrestlers. I mean, they were superstars to this at the same level as the men were. And I I wasn't even surprised when they had that first evolution pay-per-view that was an all women pay per view. And to be honest, I was flabbergasted when I saw the quality of the matches they put on, the quality of talent that they had there, the level of talent. I was like, wow, have they come a long way, you know? And the matches with the guys. You got, you know, guys right now like Seth Rollins. You got Kevin Owens. You know, Kevin Owens, different types of guy, right? You look at the, his physique and stuff. He's not the typical WWE physique. But at the same time, that guy has charisma. He's great on the mic. He's a great worker. He can do it all, you know. And you get, like I said, you got Seth Rollins, Dolph Ziggler, uh, AJ Styles, you know. And you look at the matches these guys are putting together, and it's like, wow. I remember so many pay-per-views since I've been back. We're, we're doing it live, and I'll, and I'll catch myself looking at Jan with a big smile and a thumbs up to him. People don't see that. But, you know, I look the Jan, it's like, wow, you know, I'm giving it wow, this is good, you know? So, like I said, I, I'm, I'm pleasantly surprised with the uh,
0: evolution of the business. He's like you said, you know, you debuted all the way back, you think about it, in 1986, when really sports entertainment was kind of in, in the midst of, you know, the Hulk Hogan era, the golden era, whatever yeah. you want to call it.
1: Yeah. It was
0: the, the yeah. rock and wrestling, it was, it was that. Was, you said it was a crazy kind of transition. Was that? You know, an easy transition for you when you entered into the WWF with your brother Jacques in 1986.
2: Not the easiest because I started in the business when I was 16 years old in 1971. And in 71, when I was wrestling on TV, it was black and white. <laughs> you know, that's so how far back it goes. So the um, our wrestling show in, in color only started a year or two later. But I started when I wrestled was started in the business. Wrestling was in black and white. Uh, So that's how far back we were. And um, so through that, you know, the first time I saw something with music and stuff on an entrance was 1977. I I went to a tournament, wrestled in in, uh, Hanover, Germany for three weeks. And um, I remember when they introduced me the first time I was going to the ring and all of a sudden I had a music to my name. It was like, what? To me, it almost felt like a circus, like music going to the ring. What is this? You know? But that's the way it was. And like they say, when in Rome, do as the Romans. Well, I'm in Germany, and that's the way they do it. Okay. But I, I almost felt embarrassed going to the ring to the, to the sound of music, you know. So there was little evolution there. And the thing is, life you have to evolve. Everything evolves. Society evolves. Business evolves. You have to keep your eyes open, and you have to follow, or else you'll be left behind. And that's where when I came to the WWE in the beginning and then I saw,
1: you know, the Bulldogs
2: with the Matilda and I saw Jake Roberts with his snake and, you know, these animals and whatnot. And at times I was like, wow, this, this is really a big step for me, you know, because I'm, I'm kind of a conservative person. And that was a big step. But at the same time, I said, if I don't go with the flow right now, well, you know, I'm going to have to just go home and forget about the business because that's where the business is going. So you have, I had to force myself a bit just to open my horizons and be a little more receptive to the changes. And eventually, I loved it because when my brother and I turned heel and became the fabulous Rougeau brothers, we're the ones that worked on their, our song with Jimmy Hart. You know, Jimmy, uh, Jimmy Hart and Jimmy McGuire, they, they wrote the music, my brother and I did a lot of composing of the, uh, the words to it. Jimmy composed some of the words. We did the French side, put that all together, and, hey, I was having a blast. You know, and if, if I look at it, basically, I'm there, we're there composing our music, singing our own song, coming in, coming in as heels, which i would never been heard of in the Rougeau family, coming in with the little American flag, being, becoming one of the most hated teams in the WWE, it's like wow, we have gone a long way, you know. And being around Vince a lot, you know, I, Vince told me once, "I want to be the first promoter to have to promote the first pay-per-view from the moon." And at that hmm. point, I was like, "Wow, he's you know he, he, he's really like uh, far out, you know." But you, and you know what? Another f- funny thing: thirty years ago. <clears throat> okay i'm going back a long time now 30 years ago i was talking with pat patterson one day and you know because pat was uh, vince's booker he pat patterson was vince's right hand man for a long time and i knew pat because him and i had been tag team partners we were tag team champions in quebec before i went to the wwe and um and one day we were talking and he says you know ray Vince has a vision, and he says, years from now, because back then, we were on the road all the time. You're never home. And he says, Vince has a vision. He says, one day, mark my word, the guys are not going to work as much as you. It says, the business is going to run off TV. It's going to be pay-per-views. WWE uh, is going to make movies. The guys are going to be like big celebrities, not only in wrestling, but they're going to cross over, you know, like into movies and whatnot, because... WWE superstars are in everything. They're in commercials, movies, and everything. And he Vince had talked to Pat, to Pat about that over 30 years ago. And Pat was telling me, Vince is going to have, he says, you mark my words, Vince is going, one day he's going to have his own network. It's going to be wrestling, like wrestling and wrestling products, 24 hours a day. And he says,
1: it's going to have like
2: a pay-per-view every month. And I, I was thinking, I, I can't see that happening. Wrestling A wrestling network, 24 hours a day with just wrestling programming, I could not see that. But that's what kind of a visionary he was. And then when I look now, and I've talked to that even a couple of years ago when I came back and I was talking with Jean, I said, you know, I said at that point it was like 26 years ago, Pat was telling me one day Vince is going to have his own network and he's going to be all over the world. And I'm like, okay, that's pushing pretty big. And I said, we're sitting here now. We're back now because that dream, that vision has become a reality. And right now we're broadcasting 180 countries around the world in 26 languages. So anywhere in the world, somebody watches WW Network, and let's say for me, if they select, I want to watch it in French, the pay-per-view, it's Jean-I, whether they're in Saudi Arabia and Australia and Japan, I'm broadcasting that show. So what he was talking about 30 years ago is a reality right now, and I'm living it. So that's still, that still floors me right now, how far ahead of his time he was.
0: There's no doubt about it. It is pretty amazing when you really sit back and you analyze it, look what he's done, and obviously now he's worth, I think, $3 billion or whatever. The exactly. Is. I mean, what he's been able to do. Absolutely no When I met
2: Vince, he was worth $50 million, which was a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And now you look, he's worth about $3 billion. That just shows what kind of genius he is.
0: There's no doubt. He is definitely a pure genius. Now, kind of going back to pure genius for a second, the theme song, the All-American Boys, you said with Jimmy Hart, you guys did it. Was that just like almost impossible for you as a transition? Because you said you guys were serious. The Rujos were never healed. Now you're not just turning heel; You're going full-fledged, crazy, balls-to-the-wall heel.
2: Absolutely. But then again, you know, in this business, you have to, you know, either you have to be loved or you have to be hated. The problem was at one point when we came in in 86, we were baby faces and um, everybody knew that we came from Quebec. We spoke French and all that. And, uh, you know, we all know the uh, American people are very patriotic, which is not anything wrong. You know, uh, there's nothing wrong with that. But at the same time, they didn't want to see themselves being cheering for somebody that comes from a different country but also speaks French. So we were like caught between two chairs. We were caught in the middle at that point. And uh, in 1987, that's when my brother and I started thinking, you know, we realized it because we go to the ring, you had maybe 60%, 65% of the fans would cheer for us. But you had 35% that were like – or even let's say – 15% that were like, well, kind of indifferent because they didn't want to share for us because we were like considered aliens. like. And uh, then you had the rest that really didn't want to like us because we spoke French. So we said, look, we're caught in a difficult situation like that. We started talking about it. And all of a sudden, it's funny because one day, the two weeks before we spoke to Vince about it, an agent says, Hey guys, uh, Vince would like to fly you up to Stanford. He wants to talk with you guys, he wants to have a meeting.
1: So we said, Okay,
2: fine. We didn't even know what it was about. So two weeks later, we fly up to Stanford. We're sitting there, and Vince goes, Hey guys, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Vince. How are you? We start talking. And he says, Look, I have an idea. And he says, If you don't feel comfortable with it, that's fine. I respect that. And he says, Would you consider turning heel? And my brother and I both turned and looked at each other and started laughing because we said, Vince, you won't believe it, but we've been talking about this for the last two weeks. And that's where it started to evolve. And that's where Vince came up with the idea that of a slow transition and how we just, you know, keep saying how much we love the United States of America and we want to move there and come out with the little American flags. And I, at that point, I was wondering, I said, you sure, Vince, that's going to work. He says, take my word for it. Trust me. Because I was thinking, you know, you make a heel turn, the traditional heel turn, you know, we'd have a baby face mask, turn on the baby face. And all of a sudden we turn heel, but he says, no, do it. And we'll do it over like three months. And believe me, trust me, you're going to see there. I'm going to hate you guys. So we said, okay, let's do it. And <clears throat> we started that way. And, uh, you know, to be honest, that's the most fun I had in the business when we turned heel, because you can be a lot more creative. Um, you know, you can, there's no more boundaries. You could just think of what you could do and how far you can go and just push that envelope as far as it'll go, you know. And basically, it was a lot of fun.
0: Who thought of the American flag in that? Because that is just a funny thing. And, you know, you guys being very pompous and like waving it around and saying you know, Santa absolutely just booing yeah. who thought of that?
2: That was Vince's idea. He's, I mean, I actually, I even questioned it because he says, you'll come out with little American flags and, you know, you'll, you'll be waving them, but he says, we'll make them small American flags. This way it'll be a little insulting for the American public, <laughs> but at the same time for us, it's like, look, we're showing you how, much, how patriotic we are and how much we love the United States, but you got these little flags. He says, that's really going to bug them, you know? And uh, so that was Vince's idea. And like I said, the man's a genius.
0: So when you guys are kind of, you know, really going full swing with the heels turn and being heels, is it a collaborative effort or is it really kind of Vince telling you guys and you guys agreeing or you guys, you know, throwing your own ideas out there too? I know you said it sometimes with the the music and stuff, but as far as what you guys were doing out on TV, was that all Vince or did you guys are allowed to give your input?
2: No, no, that was us. That was us back then. Uh, you, you, you had all the creative. The, we sat with Vince that day we had our meeting about, yes, we agreed on making that heel turn. He had the idea of doing it slow over a period of two and three months. With the, he had the idea of the Little American flag. And as, after that, and he says, when you are out and work, don't all of a sudden turn heel, and start pulling hair and cheating. No, he says, wrestle, babyface, face, wrestle like you were, this and that. And all of a sudden, when you get into a bit of, you know, things get a little critical, you could do just, kind of a little bit of a cheap shot just to get the upper hand, but not not all the way out, you know, and we'll do it very slowly, but after that it's like, let us go and uh, we sat, we did our own thing the the capes we had, the costumes, that's all us the, the colors, that's us uh, back then, like I said, you had all the creative so we were never told do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that, we just sat and with Jimmy Hart and my brother and I, we sat and put our minds together to come up with some creative stuff and some fun stuff and what we thought would get over and uh, our own, we, we worked our own matches, did our own things. Uh, Like I said, we had all the latitude and we had basically no direction. The the time Vince gave us some direction in the beginning was with the interviews, you know, because like, how do we do our interviews now? You don't turn to the heel. We're still, you know, it's like, so Vince would guide us. This is the way I see it guys. And he would do it. Okay, so we caught his idea. And once he, like, showed us the road, then it's like he set us on the road and you guys just do do your thing. So he never, like I said, after that, nobody ever uh, gave us boundaries or this or that. We knew basically, okay, that's the road we need to take and develop on that. We did our own development, our own ideas. What we came up with, our interviews, that was us. The music was us, the, you know, and... Uh, the, the the wrestling styles that we changed. as we changed our style, nobody said start changing. Don't start changing. It was as it came naturally, and everything just came naturally. But we had all the creative on that.
0: It is so interesting, really, to just look at when you guys kind of debuted as faces, you know, against the heel heart foundation or the Moondogs' Function. Just to, yeah. you guys at that point, and then it was like a complete one hundred and eighty when you guys were yeah. heels and like the way you wrestled and the style and. You almost can't even think, like, oh, those guys don't have that much, you know, natural charisma. Or those guys can't play that patronizing character. I mean, everything that you, you kind of thought as a fan you guys couldn't do, you guys did, and then some. It was just so funny. Like, the way you guys were just re- able to become heels, it was just like, oh, my God, that was, you're right, like, so natural of the Rujos to play that character.
2: Well, basically, that that's what happened. I think it was in there. We had it in us but we just didn't know it was there. And when we were giving, you know, with Vince, what was fun too is when we met him, he says, guys, he says, here, I'm giving you the opportunity. I'm going to open the doors and look, the sky's the limit. You know, that's how far you can go, you know? So that's why when we turned heel, it's like, hey, the road's paved ahead of you, just go. And, you know, if you can become the hottest heel team in the territory, more power to you. There were no boundaries that were set, no limits that were set. And that's where for us to sit and start developing that side in, it was like like you mentioned, it was just natural. Everything just came so easily, so naturally, and it was so much fun.
0: Well, remember the All-American Boys theme song that's just one of those, probably one of the greatest themes of all time. It's just so funny and so catchy and your face is like when you came out to that theme with Jimmy yeah, Hargis, yeah. it was absolutely perfect. You know, when we, we recorded
2: that, uh, Vince flew us down to Memphis, Tennessee. We went to Sun Records, Sun Studios, mm-hmm. you know, and at the time, Sun Studios didn't mean anything. Why are they find us there? What's the big deal? You know, when we got there, walked in, and we saw Elvis recorded there, Johnny Cash recorded there, a lot of, I was like, wow. Now we, and you know and now, it's funny, because last year, at a friend of mine, he went for a trip uh, to the States, and he was going through Memphis, and he went to the studio where we recorded the song, and that was part of his his uh, trip, it was a tour of Sun, Sun Records, Sun Studios. And I said, that's where we recorded All American Boys. But, you know, it's like, that's the way Vince was. You know, it flew us to Memphis, so you're in there, you're in the environment. And we did it one afternoon, and then we flew back because we were wrestling that night somewhere. I don't remember where, but we flew to Memphis that day. We did a lot of photo shoots in the studio, uh, in front of Graceland, uh, in front of the uh, Memphis Bell, the paddle boat, you know, uh, different shoots different areas in Memphis, and uh, recorded our song, and then flew out last night, that night and uh, wrestled somewhere. You know, but it, it was fun. And you know, the, the only thing sometimes in life you say I don't can't have regrets. I don't. I don't. The only thing I regret is not really taking in that day how special that day really was. Because like you said, people still talk to me today about the song "The All American Boys." You know, so it really had an impact, and it was really something special in our career. And I think that song added to, added something to. Personally, it added to our interest. We sang our own song, first of all, Mm
1: -hmm. and with the
2: lyrics that we had in and the French part, like in English, we had some lyrics. And in French, we were, like, um, taunting the American people. In French, like they wouldn't understand or wouldn't find out what it was, and we're thinking that we were real smart about it, you know? But I look back at it now, and wow, what a huge part of the success of the Fabulous
0: Rougeau Brothers that was. And adding in the part that you guys are now, from, you know, from Memphis, I think that just made people just even mad or like, oh, come on, you know, like just add it to the yeah. funniness of it. Like, oh, yeah, now they're from Memphis. Exactly.
2: And, you know, we did interviews back then that we were asking the people, you know, send in your postcards and, you know, ask inviting us to live where you are. And, you know, we'll see whoever sends in the most you know, postcards and wants us the most. That's what we're choosing. People were saying, go back home, the frogs and whatever, you know, we hate you guys. And then we kept seeing an interview. We were getting thousands and thousands of letters, you know, for people wanting us to be, you know, come in and say, please fabulous Russo brothers, be my neighbor, you know, and people were like, but we're having so much fun with that. And eventually, like I said, we had chosen Memphis, Tennessee, you know,
0: (laughs) it was fun. It is great, and also a part of like that era of wrestling is the tag team division, and the WWF at that point was just so stacked. You know, whether yes, be it be the Hart Foundation or the Killer Bees or even the Rockers or the Bushwhackers. I mean, there were so many yeah. great teams for you guys to work with, right?
2: Absolutely. You know, we had. I loved working with the Hart Foundation. Uh, they were a great team, and uh, you know, I can't can't pass. Uh, besides the angle that we did with the rockers with Shawn Michaels and Marty Giannetti. I mean, we we went around the world with them and we drew some hell of a crowd. You know, we did some matches with them because even back then, I mean, Shawn was a hell of a worker, you know, and uh, we did some matches. Back then it was called marathon matches. Nowadays, it's called Ironman matches. But I'm, Pat came up with that idea because Pat knew that we could wrestle. You know, I had done some hour matches with Pat Patterson because he had turned heel on me in Montreal. And then I did some matches, him, me against him. And we did, we did some hour matches together in singles. And uh, he knew I could do them. And uh, so he says, Ray, I have an idea. I'd like to do some marathon matches with you guys and the rockers. I think you guys will tear the house down. And I was like, sure, I have no problem because they were great workers. And I remember back then, Shawn Michaels says, an hour, I could never wrestle an hour. What are you talking about? And I told him, I said, Shawn, relax. I said, you know, look, we'll sit down, we'll go through it. And I said, you know, just follow us and uh, things will go great and this and that. And finally we did, we did probably about 10 or 12 of them in different cities. And they put us on last and, uh, when when we go, I say the last 25 minutes of the matches, people were standing all over against the the guard railings and they were like screaming for the last 25 minutes of the match. And what we do is we go to the end of the one hour time limit and we'd wind up having it maybe one fall to one fall or two falls to two falls. We'd go to sudden death overtime and then we'd wrestle another average, you know, between 12 and 20 minutes, 15, 17 minutes. So basically our match would be like an hour and a quarter, you know, and then finally, the, you know, the baby face went over, people went nuts, the place, you know, it would blow the roof off the place, you know, and we just had an hour and a quarter match. But, you know, we had the guys to do it with. And like you said, the talent was stacked back then. Uh, you know, the level of talent was just amazing.
0: Man, when you think back at uh, that division, it's just crazy because you've know, you got guys now, you know, some um, some writers saying that right now they have the best tag team division. And I just think about that WWF division. I was like, nothing, I don't know, is, is maybe there's some other great generations of teams, but I don't know about anybody beating that WWF uh, era of yeah. teams. I mean, it's just so well,
2: many you, well, good the teams. Thing is, the thing is, John, like we said before, the business has evolved if Perhaps if you took the teams from back then, put them with the wrestling today, maybe it wouldn't be as strong as it was. And if you take the teams of today with the styles but back then, maybe they would not get over either. If the society has changed. The, the education of the wrestling fan has changed. You know, with social media and everything that is so fast, people's attention spans have shortened a lot. Everything has to be fast. Everything has to move and move on to the next thing. Where back then, you could work work a match and build it. You know, my average, when we'd work with the rockers, even not marathon matches, but our average match was at least half an hour every day. So, you know, you start the match and you build a story. And with the Hart Foundation was the same thing. You know, Bret Hart was an excellent worker. And I loved working with Bret because You could build a story, but you start your match and you build it. In the beginning, people are okay watching. And all of a sudden, without them even noticing, they're getting closer to the edge of their seat. As the match goes, they're completely on the edge of their seat. By the end, they're standing up with their arms in the air screaming. But you have to build that. You can't do that in eight and ten minutes. That takes time. But back then, the people were educated for that. And you had the time. The guys are also working. We had the time to do it. Like, they never gave us a problem. Most of the time, they put us on last with the rockers. Hey, guys, go do your thing. So we could go out and work, you know, 25, 30, 35 minutes, and nobody would say, oh, it's too long, too short, whatever. We had a match we wanted to build, get it over, and blow the roof off the building. And that's, that's what our goal was every time we got into the rain. So it added, like I said, to a different level. You know, and even you know when we when we left, um, when we gave our notice that we were going to leave, you know, we'd considered it for a while. Because back then the schedule was really really hectic, and um, I, you know, I'd always been careful with my investments and stuff. I own apartment buildings, this that I, I didn't have any financial motivation to keep being on the road anymore. And I, you know, at one point I just wanted to come home, and uh, basically when when. I wanted to see Vince give my notice. That was after SummerSlam 89. I gave him a notice and he was like, what? You're way too young. I was was 34 years old. And he says, you're way too young. I said, Vince, I just want to go home. And he says, Ray, he says, I've only just started what I want to do with you guys. He says, you know, the, the sky was the limit. And, um, he says, I want to put the belt on you guys. I want to build the, the, you know, the dolls and this and that. I I haven't even begun what I wanted to do yet. I said, Vince, you'd have told me this a year ago. I would have been the happiest guy in the dressing room. But I said, right now, I said, I understand the business here is a grind. You're, you're on that wheel. You have to keep going. And I said, I'm just not there anymore. And I said, financially, I don't need to work anymore. I do it because I'm passionate about it. <clears throat> but I said, where I am now, I just want to go home. I want to wake up in my bed. I want to go walking with my dog in the woods. I live in the country. I have a seaplane. I'm a pilot. I want to go up in the woods with my plane. I want to go fishing. I want to go hunting. I just want to wake up at home every day. It's okay. What do I want to do right now? So he, he asked me, he says, Ray, give me a week, and I'll make you a, a, an offer you can't refuse. I said, Vince, you have to understand. I said, that's not where I am. He says, give me a week. And he says, hear me out, give me a week. And he said, I'll make you an offer you can't refuse. I said, okay, but Vince, I said, basically, my mind is made up. And I said, I'm not trying to sit here and talk to you. And t- this isn't a negotiation ploy. I said, basically, I only have two words for you. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity for being here. Thank you for this experience. I got to wrestle in the greatest organization around, in in the, in the world, I got to travel all around the world. I got to make money. I had a blast. I, I, my career went to heights I never even thought would have been possible years before. I said I just want to thank you, but I said now I just want to go home. So basically, he said just give me the week. I said okay, but uh, so I because he told Pat right after that I have to find a way to make him stay. And then that night, I couldn't sleep. Every time I'd start to doze off, I kept dreaming. I'm back in the dressing room, back on the road. I'd wake up in a cold sweat thinking, how come I'm still here? I wanted to go home. Why am I still on the road? And then all of a sudden, I'd wake up. Oh, it was just a dream. But I was soaking wet. And then I'd have a hard time going back to sleep. Eventually, when I did, I'd wake up again in a cold sweat. I was in the dressing room again or in the ring again. So I woke up the next morning and I called Vince's secretary and I said, look, I said, this is Ray Rougeau. I spoke with Vince last night. He wanted me to give him a week to get back to me. I said, just ask him, please respect. I just want to go home. And uh, I said, I had nightmares all night just thinking about it. And I said, I just want to go home. So he never came back to me about it. But a couple of weeks later he had told Pat, he said, I need to find a way to keep him. He wanted to keep me in the company. And I, I'm glad he did. And then he said, Pat came up to me, Ray, have you ever considered, uh, he says, being an announcer, being, you know, doing interviews in French, and I said, never considered it. You know, and that's when I said, what's the schedule? And at that point, they were taping once every three weeks. So he says, you come out once every three weeks, and you'll do a couple of interviews for each show, and then you're off for three weeks. I said, okay, because this way, I, 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 didn't have, I never lost the passion for the business I couldn't handle the traveling anymore. I was getting nauseous just seeing an airport, you know. So, um, that's, that, so getting back to going every three weeks to do interviews, I was like, wow, that could be fun. And at the same time, a new challenge. So that's where I started. So the last day I wrestled, I was in Bakersfield, California, at the end of November, 89. That night, I drove back to the airport, caught a red eye from L.A. to New York, and the next morning I was in Stanford doing my first TV show the next morning. So, um, you know, like I say, 15 hours after my last match, I was in the, uh, the audio booth doing, calling a wrestling show. <laughs> so that's how my announcer career started. And to be honest, best thing I ever did. I have it a bl- I'm having a blast. I had a blast doing it. And uh, what an evolution. It gave me another 13 years with the company, you
0: know? So it was fun. Now you do actually wrestle the Bushwhackers at Royal Rumble 1990, technically, That's I guess correct. your last, so I guess no. he, he convinced you to do one more match after, you know, basically a month or almost two months you, off. You
2: know how, it, you know how the saying goes, just like when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> basically my decision was final that I was leaving the business wrestling. I mean, yep. but, um, we finished at the end of 89 and, uh, you know, we're two, two months away from Royal Rumble. And, uh, Pat came up to us and asked, look, Vince asks, you know, could you guys come back for the rumble, you know, and you'll be with the Bushwhackers and all that, please. You know, he'd really appreciate it. I said, hey, no problem. You know, I was like Vince. You know, a lot of people have had a lot of different things to say about Vince. Personally, I only have respect for the man. Uh, I consider him a friend. I went through a, 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 a divorce back in 1997. And uh, it, was a little, it was a bit of a different difficult time at that point. And uh, Vince heard about it. And he said, uh, we were at a pay-per-view in, the, in uh, New England somewhere. I can't remember if it was Boston or Providence. Anyways, we were at a production meeting in the afternoon. As we left, Vince says, uh, Ray, he says how are you doing? I said, fine, Vince, how are you? He says, uh, do you have a chance later? I said, I'd like to have a talk with you. I said, okay, no problem. So I didn't know, I had no clue what it was about. So a little while later, um, an agent came and said, Vince wanted to see you. So he took me into his office, just him and I. He says, I heard you're going through a bit of a rough time right now. I said, well, yes, I am, Vince, and thanks for asking. He says, you want to talk about it? I said, well, you know, it's not much to talk about. And like I said, it was a difficult time. So he stayed there talking with me uh, to make me feel good, and uh, to cheer me up, and all of a sudden, I remember Kevin Dunn knocked at the door, and it was a live pay-per-view that night. He says, Vince, we need to talk to you. We have a problem or something. He says, not right now. He says, I'm with Ray. He says, okay, and he left. He closed the door. We're there. Another 15, 20 minutes later, knocks again. Kevin says, Vince, he says, could we please talk to you? He says, we need to talk to you. You know, He says, I told you. Vince, and he says, Raymond is my priority right now. So he says, I don't want to be bothered. I'm like Vince, you need to go. We're live in a couple of hours. They got a problem. He says, No, you're my priority right now. For me, that that blew me away. He's got a live pay-per-view in a couple of hours, and his priority is my well-being right now. For me, I mean, what kind of guy does that? He's, got, he's running a multi-million, you know, a multi-million dollar business. He's live on the air in a pay-per-view in a couple hours, and his priority right now is me. So uh, for me, I never forgot that. And uh, at one point, the third time, Kevin came back, Vince, please, we need to talk to you, please. And uh, I said, Vince, go ahead. You know, I said, you got a business to run? Or it, he spent probably half an hour with me. And then he said, Ray, he gave me his home phone number. He said, you need to talk. You call me. It's at one, two, three in the morning. I don't care. That's the phone next to my bed. He says, you call me. You need to talk. I said, I appreciate it, Vince, but I don't think I'll be calling you. I won't bother. He said, you keep that number. You need to talk. You called me. From that, how could I not have the most ultimate respect for the man who's running? Like I said, who am I? You know, he took that time with me, and that's 1997. Like I said, I never forgot that. That's 23 years ago, you know, and for me, it's like, actually, yes, 23 years ago. And for me, it's like, wow. He's, he's a decent human being, and I, I can never thank him much, thank him enough. And when I saw him, I, you know, I didn't see him for 15 years. When I came back to Great Balls of Fire, he was out there looking at one thing in the building, and I saw him. I said, damn, there's Vince. I hadn't seen him in 15 years. I came up behind him. I said, hello, Vince. And you know, Vince is always business, and he's looking. and So he says, hello. I said, how are you doing? He says, oh, fine, thanks. And I, I thought he hadn't seen me you know, because he, he was looking at the, the camera angles, this and that. I said, hello, Vince. And he turned, Ray. And he gave me a big hug. We gave, he says, I'm so glad to see you. I said, me too, Vince. And I said, it's great to be back. And he says, I know. And he says, he says it's nice to have you back. That's why for me, I have only the utmost respect for Vince. And uh, for me, I always consider him my friend. You know, like I said, when I was going through high time, he was there, and he didn't have to do that for me so
0: pretty amazing story of uh, Vince is very cool,
2: yes, yes, for me, he's
0: a real cool guy,
2: you know, and I will be forever grateful
0: now One thing I wanted to bring up, which is so interesting when you kind of look back at who could have or should have been tag team champions in WF because, you know, there were so many great tag teams of that era. Yeah. And, I, re- and yeah. I remember you guys do technically win the titles, but then yeah. it kind of gets reversed. Do you remember that night in Montreal? I and mean, were you oh, actually absolutely. supposed to hold the titles longer or was that just something for the Montreal crowd?
2: That was something for the Montreal crowd. That was a Pat Patterson idea. Uh, we were wrestling at heart foundation for the tag team championship. And Pat came up with the idea to Vince. Vince, tense. So I've got an idea. He says, What if we do a thing where the Rougeos steal the belts, like win the belts from the Hart Foundation, you know? uh, Because Jimmy Hart was going to use the megaphone, hit one of us. We hit him. The megaphone fell. The referee was turned, pushing one of the, you know, pushing someone back. We pick up the megaphone, boom, hit one of the Hart Foundation, throw it out. Referee turns around. We cover one, two, three. The, The roof blew off the Montreal Forum. That was Pat's idea. And then he says, you know, the next day we could say, oh, the Rugell's cheated, you know, and whatnot. So the, the decision is reversed they're disqualified. So they give the belts back to the Hart Foundation. That was, for me, it was a little bittersweet. Um, because, you know, yeah, we did win it, but not, it wasn't an official, like I said, l- yes, we won it. They took the pictures in the papers everywhere in Montreal, the Rugell brothers, you know. WWE tag team champions we're all over the papers in Montreal and the next day we weren't champions anymore you know it's kind of a little letdown, down but um, hey that's the business you know the timing was there and uh, back then at one point they had put the belts on the uh, brain busters Arn Anderson and Tully Blanchard and you know the Basically, and I'm not griping about it. That was, but, you know, sometimes there are politics that are involved and they were good friends with Hulk and this and that. And there was, you know, some political strings pulled there. Which, But they were good workers. I'm not denying anything about their work. But basically, I think at that point, it should have been our turn. And we, I think we deserved it at the end. And it was a bit of a sour pill to, to swallow when they did give it to the Brain Busters back then. That's where when Vince told us, I want to put the belts on you guys, this and that. And I said, Vince, if you would have told us this a year ago, we would have been the happiest guys in the business. And I said, to be honest, it was a bit of a, a sour pill to swallow when the belts were put on the brain busters at that point. But uh, that being said, I don't feel, you know, there's no resentment. There's no ill feelings towards it. It was, it was a decision, you know, a lot of business, a lot of decisions in the business have some, uh, Politics behind it, which is fine. That's part of the business, you know. But um, basically, we could have had a, a hell of a run as tag team champions, and that's what he was offering us, you know, a uh, hell of a run as tag team champions, dolls, and a, a truckload of money to stay. But basically, that's that's just to show you that's wasn't what what the let's say fueled me back then. Basically, I loved the business, and the, the, uh, where I was then is. I just want to go home now. You know, I'm satisfied. I'm very happy with the career we have. Yes, we could have had that little extra flower of being WWE Tag Team Champions officially, you know. But hey, I don't lose any sleep over that. And business is a work, you know. So it's not like, oh, I'm Tag Team Champion. I'm the best. No, it's at that point, yes, you did do the work to deserve to be in that position, but it was, you know, it's it's decided that you're going to get that position or or not right now or you know so basically it's not like you're you're really the best in the world It's somebody decide okay we'll give you a run as being the best of the world you know so you can't you can't let that uh, get to your head and you can't get a, a big ego trip over that and the, for me the business was never about an ego trip I never you know because even the guys back then when they gave me notice. And I was going home at 34. Said, Ray, you're way too young. And you'll see, you'll be missing this in six months. And I was told, literally, you'll be begging Vince to come back, you know. And uh, I said, hey, maybe. And if, if in six months I be, uh, you know I miss it that much, I will ask Vince to come back. But in my, you know, I know myself. I know the way I am. And I don't live for the uh, adulation and the, the compliments. I said, no. I loved wrestling. You know, the rest comes with it. But when I came home, I didn't miss having people say, oh, you're the best and this and that. I don't need that in my life, you know. So I'm happy waking up putting on a sweatsuit or, you know, or whatnot or putting my waiter boots on and taking off my plane up north, being in the woods, you know, hunting camp, and I'm happy there. You know, I don't miss that. So, But it is flattering. It's always nice to have the uh, fans recognize what you do. And if you make them happy and they let you know it, hey, it it's a lot more, it's, it's the satisfaction because basically when you go out and you're bust your butt trying to get your match over, why are you doing that? You're doing it to get the fan reaction, you know, but at the same time, you know, there's one little thing here because I, you know, I'm going on and on about this, but there's one thing, the first thing when I start, you know, I started training when I was 13 years old and, uh, at 14 and 15, I was in the gym wrestling all the time. I had old-timers training me. And Luigi Macera, which is an old-time wrestler, he's dead now, he said, Ray, first thing you need to learn about this business, it's about your publicity. He says, read it, enjoy it, but don't believe it. And he told me that when I was 15 years old. And, I'm, you know, now I'm 65, 50 years later, I still remember that quote. And it, it has always been a point in my life. Don't forget what you were, where you came from. Keep your feet on the ground and about the publicity. Read it, enjoy it, but don't believe it. And I, I
0: never believe my own publicity. So did your father also have that kind of uh, big hand in training? Because you said he started really young. Was he like a big part of getting into the business and training it?
2: Yes, uh, actually. Well, The reason why I started training was my dad was working out. We had weights at home. My dad was working out all the time. And I was the oldest one uh, in the family, you know, and, uh, being the oldest son. I was with my dad a lot. Him and I were like best friends throughout our lives. Uh, we were best friends. We trained together, wrestled together. We went to Japan together. I was there for two months with my dad in Japan. Um, we traveled together on vacation. We, were, we became business partners in life. So just to say that uh, when he when he was training, I wanted to be with my dad. So that he showed me, Ah, oh, come here. He had me do a few exercises. That's how I started working out with him. And then when I started wrestling, he would wrestle with me in the yard. He would, you know, do different things. But at the same time, he was the first one to admit he wasn't the best teacher because he didn't have much patience. So that's why we had uh, Luigi Macera and two Mexican wrestlers trained me a lot but my dad would get in the ring with me and uh you know it's funny back then wrestling was let's say a lot stiffer you know uh, sometimes matches like you say okay is this a work or is it not a work here you know and I remember uh it was very you had to bring make it as credible as possible and I remember my first time I got in the ring my dad showed me how to lock up my dad was pretty snug too he's 6'4 245 and he was snug and um he showed me how to lock up and lock out tight, you know, so we start pushing. So he says, okay, you push me in the rope. He says, now the referee tells you to break. What do you do? So, okay, I let him go and I put both my hands up like I'm breaking. He gave me a slap across the face. Boom. And I was like, whoa. And then, yeah, it, actually, I got teary-eyed about it. I was, you know, 15 years old. He says, protect yourself at all times. So after that, no need to say when he said, okay, let's do it again. Pushed him in the ropes. He says, break. I came back. I had my hands up like a price fighter, you know, my left and my right blocking any incoming blow that would come in. That's how my dad taught me about the business, you know. So he did, he did train me a bit. But like I said, most of the uh, wrestling and stuff were, was Luigi Macera and the two Mexican guys, Pepe Vila and Jose Correa.
0: Now, obviously, the legendary Jacques Rougeau Sr. and his brother, Johnny yes. Rougeau, huge Correct. in Montreal. So is that, just thinking about that, is that a lot of pressure getting into the business when that's uh, your family, yeah. you know what I mean?
2: Absolutely. Like, when I came in, I was six. I just turned 16 years old when I did my first professional match. And like you said, my uncle Johnny and my father were both huge names uh, in, in the province of Quebec. And uh, by coming in, all the publicity was made about the, um, the future of the Rougeau family, the latest of the Rujo, you know, the new generation coming in. So there was a lot of publicity built on me. So coming in, yes, I drew. But the first night that I wrestled, it was an arena that held about well, 2,500 people. It was sold out. So I come into that arena, 16 years old, and it sold out. And when I came in, my knees were shaking together. I was so nervous. And the the place went nuts. <clears throat> now, the thing is, yes, like I've said uh, in the past, the Russo name opened doors. Uh, you know, it created interest because of the reputation my father and my uncle had. But at the same time, there's also that perverse effect of the expectations are very high. So you come in. I'm a 16-year-old kid that's never wrestled a match. This is my first match. And I have to come in and, let's say, be good. I can't afford to uh, be a rookie and a beginner and make rookie mistakes. That's why they had me in the ring wrestling for a year and a half before even having my first match. I was in the ring three days a week, three hours a day for a year and a half before coming in for my first match. That's beside working out on the weights and stuff, but in the ring. So when I came in, I probably had the experience of a guy that had been wrestling a year and a half, two years. So. You know, it added pressure, and I felt that pressure a lot when I came in because of the name. I had to live up to the, the reputation of the name. So, But at the same time, it makes you work that much harder because you don't want to let, you let your family down. I didn't want to let my dad, my uncle down, and I didn't want to let the
0: fans down. So
1: I've
2: always set a high standard, and I wanted to live up to the expectations, which I think I did.
0: Do you think you made it easier on your brother, who's also obviously an excellent wrestler and great worker? you think you kind of made it smoother for him? Kind of like, okay. Or maybe you made it harder on him, maybe. I
2: th- I think it was easier for him when he came in because he, ca- he started in the business 1977, six years after me. And uh, the business, you know how business goes through cycles? There are high cycles and low cycles. 1977, the business was kind of in a, in a lower cycle. So there wasn't that much attention on the business. Uh, the buildings weren't sold out. They were drawing decent crowds. But, I mean, wrestling was not the talk of the town at that point. So that's where I was gone wrestling outside of the province. I was wrestling in Japan, wrestled in Germany. I was in Atlanta for uh, three years straight, you know, because business was slow in Quebec.
0: <clears throat> so when my
2: to brother wrestling. started – Uh, Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Back with Gordon Soley back then and Tommy Rich, Dick Slater, Thunderbolt Patterson, uh, Rick Clare came in once in a while, Uh, you know, Angelo Mosca, you know, a lot of the guys back then. But um, the business was slower here. So when he came in, all the media wasn't there and all the lights weren't turned on. It was like he could start and be a rookie and it was okay because everybody wasn't looking at the business and it wasn't like, oh, the the new generation of Rugell, no, that was me. So he came in, okay, so there's another Rugell brother coming in. You know, so he didn't have that same pressure when he started. And he didn't wrestle long here because, like I said, the the wrestling was slow, so there weren't that many shows. So he wrestled a bit, but then he turned around, and, you know, to his credit, you know, at 17 years old, he got on a bus, went to Calgary in the Stu Dungeon, and he started wrestling in Calgary to get experience, and then he went to Mexico, you know, he went on the road, went to Nashville, and, you know, he went on the road to, to gain experience, pay his dues. And when he came back, yeah, I think it was 1980, uh, that's where him and I, uh, he came back here. We weren't exactly on the same level yet. I was wrestling mostly main event here in single matches, and he was in the, in the middle of the card. And the following year, that's where him and I started teaming up and that's where the Russo brothers really started kicking it off. But you know, at that point, uh, you know, was 1981, I was 26. He was 21 years old, and he probably weighed about 230 pounds. He was six three and a half, two thirty. So he, you know, he had gained mass, he had gained size, experience, and he was a good worker. And him and I complemented each other well because we had completely different styles. I have a style my style is not as spectacular as his and I don't have as much charisma as him on the mic, but at the same time, um, you know, he was, he was more flamboyant than I was, but at the same time, I brought a credible side to the, to the team. That's where here in Quebec people like we were really, really over as a team. And, uh, but the thing was like, he would be on the mic. We'll do this. We'll do that. Blah, blah, blah. And I'd add a little something, but in the ring, that people like Raymond can kick butt, you know. So we we complemented each other. Well, and that is similar to the Hart Foundation, Jim Hart, uh, Jim Neidhart, and Bret Hart. Bret was the technical wrestler, and Jim Neidhart was the powerhouse. Well, my brother was the more flamboyant one, and I was the more, let's say, the, the the silent force of the team, you know. But that brought that brought in my half of the
0: the effort. And they do say, and I, correct me if I'm wrong, that. You are a legit tough guy as well. Is that true? Like you know, they might not think of you as a shooter per se, but you know, you can handle yeah. yourself. Obviously, you know some boxing and stuff. So, is that true? Like you were legit? Maybe not so much your brother, but yeah. you for sure, legit tough guy. Yeah,
2: I I was taught young by my dad because starting in the and you know, I mean, who's a tough guy who's not a tough guy? You know, I mean, every given day, even if you're the toughest guy around, on every on any given day. That day, you could not be the tough guy. But the thing is, I always did take care of myself. I never looked for problems. I was not one to mouth out to the guys. And, you know, I could say pretty much all the guys in the business, they all like me. They all respect me because I've always been a quiet guy. But at the same time, when I started in the business, my dad my dad was a Golden glove champion boxer and when he was young. And uh, he taught me to box when I was young. And when I was a kid, we'd have all the – You know, the the guys from the neighborhood come around, I put the gloves on, my dad had me box with them, you know, and my dad really taught me how to defend myself. And he explained, he told me when I was young, he says, I'm teaching you this, not to be a bully in life and not to, you know, basically not to be a bully, but he says, if need be, you'll know how to take care of yourself. So I was taught at a young age, you have to command respect. And uh, that's what I did. I had to do a few times, especially starting off young in the business. Um, there were some bullies. And some guys that did not appreciate me in the business starting that back then when I was 16 years old, for them, it's like, for some guys, it was an insult to business. A 16-year-old kid in our business, what an insult. So a couple of guys tried to rough me up a bit. I had to establish a certain respect with those people. And uh, after that, they respected me, you know? But sometimes, like I said, it's, it's an environment where you had to command respect. And you, if you didn't, you'd get walked all over. And, and uh, you know, so basically, yeah, a couple of times I did have to do it. There was one guy in particular in Quebec here. Uh, his name was uh, Zarineuf Lebeuf. He wrestled as Pierre the Lumberjack, I think, in WWF, Vince's father. He was tag team champion, I think, at one point. And he wrestled my other brother, Arma, that started uh, in 1982. And uh, he had a match with him in the town. He beat the crap out of my brother. And I, my, my brother had been in the business about three, four months. So when he came back in the dressing room, I looked at, I was on the main event that night, uh, Jacques and I. And I looked, and I said, what happened to you? He said, I don't know. His eyes were, like, glazed over. He had fan prints all over his face. I mean, like, what happened? So I asked the referee, I said, what happened out there? So he says, well, enough was upset because he felt it was an insult to him that the promoters had booked my brother Arma with him since Is that enough you know, had a reputation. He was a big guy and this and that. and He wrestled in Minneapolis, New York, and he's wrestling against my brother Arma that only had a few months' experience. So <clears throat> he took it as an insult and into the ring, I mean, he, you know, he permitted himself some liberties on my brother that just started the business. So basically a few days later, coincidence, you know, life, you know, karma, uh, we're in the town wrestling. I'm wrestling Pat Patterson in the main event that night. And, uh, in enough was on an earlier match against another wrestler who didn't show up. So then, um, Gino says, "Yeez, what am I gonna do?" I said, "Gino, put me with that enough. He says, "Ray, I can't do that. You're on the main event." I said, "Put me with him." I said, "It's personal." I said, "You don't have to pay me. This is personal." So Gino says, "Okay, no problem." He's like, "Okay, a match for the boys here." I went in that night, and when I got to the center of the ring, um, I told enough. "You know how the referee used to come? The two guys come in the middle of the ring. Referee come, mm-hmm. like give instructions." Yep. Well, the referee said he started giving the instructions. I didn't listen to him. I said, is that enough? I said, eh, you were uh, pretty strong with my brother the other night. So he says, yes. Yeah, so what the F do you care? I said, well, basically I do. And I said, tonight I'm going to be too strong for you. So he says, we'll see. He outweighed me by about 60 pounds. He was about three pound, uh, 60 pounds. He was three inches taller. He was a fighter. He was a bouncer in the nightclub back then. He had a, a reputation. And I remember before going out, you remember Edward Carpentier? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, Edward and I were good friends. Edward was in the dressing room. He knew I was going to avenge my brother. And uh, he said, before going out, he says, Ray, just be careful. He says, if he gets you on the ground, he's going to cripple you. I said, okay. I said, thank you very much, Edward, for the advice. But I said, he's got to get me on the ground first. So uh, I went out and uh, so I told the referee when I told him that, he says, we'll see, you know. And I told the referee, the referee's looking like, what's going on here? I said, go in the corner. His name was Joe Cloutier. I said, Joe, go in the corner. This doesn't concern you with him and I. So basically, I ended Zadina's career that night. And it basically, I think it was a prelude to what the UFC is today, <laughs> except we had no love at all. It was bare fist. And uh, the fans were quiet because they were like, what is going on here? You know. And um, the match lasted not long because, I mean, there's nothing spectacular in that. Basically, it's it, it was a fight, you know, and uh, <clears throat> I, I finished my brother, and uh, he was gone. He left his face bloodied out, and Pat Patterson still talks about it today. He mentioned it long lot ago. He said, he was telling it to Sid and he says, I was there that night. Ray beat the crap out of him. And he says, he came in, his face all bloodied, took his things and left. He was never seen again, and That was the last night he was ever seen. He left the building. He was supposed to wrestle the next night. I was wrestling him in Montreal. He never showed up. He never came back. He was never seen around a wrestling ring, a wrestling building again. He even left the province of Quebec. I heard he lives somewhere near Charlotte, North Carolina. He moved, he left the country actually. So, you know, that kind of made a bit of reputation for me. Uh, and there were a few other occasions, but like I said, I didn't enjoy that. I didn't want to do it, uh, but it was a business back then. Maybe it still is in a certain way, to a certain extent. But I don't. I think the business has changed. But back then, you had to command respect. So and you know, and like you've probably heard about the British bulldogs uh, story. Also, yes, that basically was in the same thing. You know, when when Dynamite attacked my brother in Miami that night went back and said, what happened here? You know, we didn't have a clue. But we said, I told my brother there has to be a comeback. And I said, if you don't do it, I'm going to have to do it. But I said, I had had an injured leg. I was, basically I couldn't walk at that point for a couple of months. And um, I said, if it's me, I'm going to have to let my leg injured, you know, my my leg heal and then I'll do it. My brother says, no, I have to do it. I said, fine. And I said, I'll watch your back. And uh, we set up you know, the, the comeback, and it was done like a week later in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And uh, like I said, it's a matter of respect. And when that happened after that, I went to see Vince because he'd wanted to talk to us. He'd heard about it. And he says, oh, guys, how you doing? I said, good. And my brother's saying, "Thing good." He says, oh, uh, I have an interview. I have to talk with Hulk. And when I'm done with him, I'd, need, I'd like to talk to you guys. So no problem. My brother said, he's probably going to talk to us about that, you know, and uh, to make sure nothing happens. My brother said, we have to do it now. I said, okay, let's go. So we looked out, we searched and found Dynamite Kid. My brother's the one that did it on his own, and I was just there to make sure nobody jumped on him. And actually, I was talking to Pat Patterson, and Pat had no idea what was going to happen. When it happened, Pat, like, Pat's talking to me. I'm not listening. I'm I'm just because my brother said in French that that was coming. Says I'm doing it, so I didn't want to turn so he'd suspect something. I keep listening to Pat, but I'm not hearing a word he's saying. And Pat says, "Are you listening to me or what?" I said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, yeah," but in fact, <laughs> I was not because I was waiting to hear the thud go, you know. And then when when it was done, Pat started to yell. He went, "Hey, stop this!" I grabbed bat, Pat, I grabbed Pat by the neck. Pushed him into the wall and said, out of this. This doesn't, this is none of your concern. And uh, that after that, when the guys came out and everything dynamited, lost his teeth and all that, we went to see Vince and I uh, knocked on the door. And I said, Vince, we need to talk to you. He says, well, I'm not done with Hulk yet. And then I said, no, we need to talk to you now. And I pointed my brother's hands and he saw my brother's hands full of blood. He says, oh, shit. And Hulk said, hey, guys, I'm out of here. He says, you go in. And the first thing I told Vince, I said, Vince, I said, I know you heard what happened. And I said, "Um, things have been settled right now. And I said, if you want to fire us right now, I said, that's fine. We could live with that. But I said, we could not live with the way things were. And if there had not been a comeback, I said, I'd have to look at myself the rest of my life in the mirror. And I'd have to look down. I couldn't look at myself in the mirror right now. I said, I can look at myself in the mirror. And if you fire us, I can still look at myself in the mirror. He said, no, I don't want to fire you guys. But that needs to stop. That's where, you know, things... Uh... But then he went. He was going to go get the Bulldogs, get us together, so finish this. But the Bulldogs were gone to the hospital. I know it was gone there. So, you know, but that's a matter of respect in the business. You know, you have to... <clears throat> you know, I always, in a way maybe it's not a flattering compar- comparison to the way the business was back then. I always looked at it as, as a prison, you know, you see prison mo- movies where you go in prison you have to be respected or else you're going to get pushed around. You're going to be, you know, whatever. Yep. That's the way the business, the, the dressing room was. If you had no respect from the guys, some guys automatically will become bullies like down to my kids. And if he wants to come in, that's where he wants to sit in your stuff there. He'll throw your stuff on the floor and that's where he's going to sit. You know, and I could not allow that. So basically, you, you had to command respect, you know. So yes, I was taught young to take care of myself and if need be, I could. And it happened a few times. But like I said, it's not something that I'm proud of or want to brag about or there's nothing to brag about. It's just surviving in a world where you had to be respected to survive in.
0: Now, as we head towards the wind down, head towards yep. the finish line, I've got to ask this because it's so interesting. In 1996, you make a somewhat of a return to the ring in a boxing match against Owen Hart. Is that one of the Correct. things where they needed a, a jolt? At that point, for Montreal, they needed something, so they put you guys out there, and you know, obviously, sold a pretty good house. I think it was like 10,000 people that night. So, I mean, obviously,
2: at least, yeah, it was a good house. Uh, Basically, no, (laughs) you know, the story was I'm the one that went to Vince about that. I had been out of the ring. I had been out of the ring. You see, when I when I retired from the ring, it was November of uh, '89. My son was born April of 90. I retired five months before he was born. Everything was planned. I didn't want to have kids when I was on the road and never be home. I wanted to be a parent that was there. So when I agreed with my wife that we could try to have a, a child, I knew I was gonna, I would be leaving the ring that year. So she got pregnant uh, probably that in August somewhere. I gave my notice in August. And uh, whether she'd been pregnant or not, I was going to give my notice there anyways. But I gave the okay, okay, we could uh, try to have uh, a child because I knew by the time he he or she would be born, I would not be on the road anymore. So my son was born in uh, April of 1990. And I was doing the commentary and interviews by then, doing live interviews on the ring, backstage and whatnot, play-by-play, all sorts of things. He was, uh, you know... He obviously became a wrestling fan, like a lot of kids do. And he saw me doing the interviews. And by the time he was three, four years old, he was playing the Nintendo games with the wrestlers and stuff. And he was saying, Dad, am I ever going to see you in the ring one day? You gonna, I said, maybe one day, maybe one day. You never know. For me, my career was over and I was done with. But I figured, and also, you know, he's a kid that will just pass by. And then after that, you know, he'll he'll grow out of it. Unfortunately, it, he never did. And uh, he was probably four years old starting to ask. And then at five, he says, Dad, you said one day I might see you in the ring. When's it going to happen? Oh, maybe one day, maybe one day. This is 1995. So 94, 95, and he never let, let up. And then early 96, he was like, Dad, you told me maybe I'd see you in the ring one day. Now, I'm thinking I've been out of the, year, of the ring for six years already. And I was 42, and I'm like, wow, if I want to do something, uh, it has to start to be pretty soon. And I've always been a man of my word. And I told him, maybe one day you'll see me." Even I didn't give him my word, I said, maybe you will. I didn't want to let him down. And I always did like boxing, and I was always a boxing fan. So I couldn't – as far as my wrestling career, I figured I'd done everything I, I wanted to do, needed to do, you know, in the, in, the wrestling being, in the wrestling ring. I'd been out for, like I said, over, over six years. So for me to get stimulated, to get excited about something, I said, I'd like to come back and do a boxing match. So I went, I went to Vince about it. I said, Vince, when we have a next summer, we have a show coming up in Montreal. I'd like to be on that show. He says, okay. And I said, I want to do a boxing match. He says, why a boxing match? I said, well, that's going to give me the incentive of getting into the shape. I want to be for that match. But I said, I don't have that drive to do it for another wrestling match. So he says, okay. And I, at that point I asked him, I said, I'd like to do it with Shawn Michaels. So, but at that point he was starting to build Shawn Michaels, you know, cause the guys were leaving like these going stuff with WCW and stuff. And he was starting to build Shawn and Brett. So for, to do the boxing match, obviously I was going to go over in Montreal. So he said, it's probably not the best timing to do that with Sean. So I said, okay, who else? And Owen was good at that point. He was like the King of hearts, you know, and all that. So he said, how about Owen Hart? I said, yes, Owen. I said, that'd be great. You know, cause he, Owen was a professional. He is a hell of a nice guy. And um, I said, yep, yeah, that would be great. So we set out. That was set. This was in, Early, I say January of 1996. February, we did an angle at the Montreal Forum. February or March, we did an angle. And uh, when I knew that was going to start, I started training in February for the match in August. You know, that's to show you the, the passion. I'm a passionate guy. And uh, to come back, I wanted the fans to see they hadn't seen me in the ring for six and a half years, almost seven years at that point. I wanted them to go, "Wow, he's in shape." So I cut my weight down. I, I was never never heavy because when I wrestled, I was 224, you know, and uh, when I quit, when I became a, an interviewer, I cut my weight down to 214, and I stayed there for the seven years. And uh, when I went to the boxing match, I cut my weight down to 195, another 19 pounds. I hadn't weighed that since I was 19 years old. And uh, I had the six-pack, and I was, you know, I was doing 1,500 sit-ups a day. I was doing um, boxing. I was doing. I have Dino Claret, which was a champion boxer here. I would do sparring with him, uh, ten rounds. I was r- running uh, three miles a day, jumping rope for twenty minutes a day, doing the heavy bag, the speed bag. I was doing a ton of stuff, and I came in, like I said, nineteen pounds lighter, and um, like the the abs were there and everything. I was like, yes. But the thing was, I wanted my son to see me in the ring and to say, wow, my dad, I was at the same level as all the guys that were in their 30s, 20s and 30s, never left the business. I'm 42. I've been gone for seven years. And I'm at that level. So that's what I did. And the reason why that's it, that I have, I'm sitting right now as I'm talking to you and I've got that picture in front of me where at the end of the match, my dad was in my corner, the champion boxer was in my corner. And I've got my son in my right arm and, the, and I've got my left arm up in the air. My son, six years old there. And for him, his dad was, you know, the strongest guy in the world. You know, you could see the pride in his face. And yes, we have the, the place going nuts. And for him, that's a moment he will never, never forget. And that's what I wanted to give to him. That was like a final gift to my career, to my son that never saw me in the ring. I wanted to do that for him.
0: So that's, that that's is the story awesome.
2: of the boxing match. Yeah.
0: That's awesome. And that's awesome that you have that picture right there. I mean, that's pretty cool, too. Yeah, I have it know. right in front of me. Yeah.
2: And uh, yeah, I, I've got your number. I could take a picture of it and I could send it to you uh, just so you could see yeah. the picture. Yeah, absolutely. You see, my son's six years old on there. And as we speak now, he's 30, and he's an airline pilot. You know, but down there, he's a six-year-old kid living a dream in his dad's arms there in front of thousands and thousands of people going nuts, you know. So that was a moment that he'll never forget. That's And awesome. a moment I'll never forget because I was able to give that to him.
0: Awesome stuff. Do you have any other kind of favorite matches or favorite opponents that you kind of just think back and, you know, reflect in your career? Yeah. Um, basically,
2: one of the most intense matches I had in my career was in nineteen eighty five. In the summer of nineteen eighty five, actually it was in July of eighty five against the uh Jimmy and Ronnie Garvin, the Garvins. You remember rugged Ronnie Garvin?
0: Oh God, yes. Love
1: Ronnie Garvin. Yep. Okay.
2: Yeah. Well Ronnie Garvin and basically in real life it was his uh stepson by alliance. He had married the a woman that Jimmy Garvin that was his son, so Jimmy and Ronnie were not real life brothers they, uh, Ronnie was uh, Jimmy's stepfather, stepfather by, yep. yeah stepfather, yeah, so they were they came to Montreal, and uh, that summer, basically it was time because neither one knew the other one was coming to Montreal. They both called the local promoter Gino Brito. and today I'm going to be in Montreal, you know, and maybe you can book me a couple of matches here and there, you know I'll work once in a while they had, and then Ronnie Garvin called for the same thing and then they had the idea of putting them together as the Garvin brothers and working an angle with my brother and I, so the Rouge was against the Garvins. So we had here on June 24th is the Saint-Jean-Baptiste. That's a provincial uh, holiday, basically like your 4th of July is for the country, but the 24th of June is Saint-Jean-Baptiste Day. That's a Quebec holiday. So We did an angle that night. The match never occurred. Uh, They had Precious in their corner, which is Jimmy Garvin's wife. Uh, She came in as their manager. And uh, basically, she blinded my brother with her can of uh, hairspray. They attacked us, beat the crap out of us. We got carried out on stretchers. And uh, the match ended that way. There was, I'd say, probably 16,000, 17,000 people at the forum for that match, but the match, the match never happened. And then they double teamed my dad. My dad got carried out. We came back five weeks later with the return match. And uh, basically that that angle we did there, it was called the St. Uh, Jean-Baptiste Massacre. and Because we all got laid out, my dad, my brother, and I. And uh, we came back in July with a match against the Garvins. In my career, that was the most intense match as far as fan reaction, as the match itself was very intense. Um, we came in. There were 20, over 20,000 people at the forum. We turned people away. There were like two, 3,000 people in the streets that could not get into the building. They had to call the riot squad because people wanted to break windows to get in. Uh, that's, it was just incredible. And we were the main event. We came in that night, and as we came in, the roar of the place—how um, do you call it in English? When you have an ear that rings all the time—the
0: deafening yeah. of the crowd, right?
2: No, but you have it here. Even after that, like right now, I'm talking. My left ear—I have a ringing in it always. You know, and some people have that when they went to war—the shell, you know, the, the cannons and stuff. There, it's like a high tone in your ear. In French, we call it acouphene, and um, it's it's on the inside. It's you just hear a high tone all the time. I think that night contributed to that because not long after that it started. And that night going to the ring, the sound, the crowd was so loud that it distorted. You know how if you turn a sound system up too loud and your your speakers start distorting, you don't hear the sound correctly. Mm-hmm. That's what was happening in my ears that night. And um, it was amazing. We came in, we jumped them right off the bat. It was back and forth, bing, bang. We beat the crap out of them. They were both bleeding all over the place. It was almost, uh, it was pandemonium, like they say, you know.
1: <clears throat>
2: and to this day, people in Quebec still talk to me about that match. People that were there, I all of a sudden, I'll, I'll, you know, somebody talking. Ah, oh, Mr. Rougeau. Hello, I'm a, I've been a fan. I was there the night you guys wrestled the Garvin in Montreal. I'll never forget that match. And that's 1985. So you're talking 35 years ago, and people in Quebec still talk about that match. So that one for me stands out uh, pretty much more than anyone else. You know, as far as impressive match, impressive settings, WrestleMania three. That was my first WrestleMania at the Pontiac Silverdome. And, uh, you know, there were 93,000 people there, and I'd only been in WWE for a year. And like, walking out and looking at 93,000 people, it's a hum- humbling experience. You know, that, that left an impression on me, that one. But as far as intense matches, the one with the Garvins in Montreal.
0: WrestleMania three, one of the greatest shows. I mean, so memorable. Absolutely. And, you know, Hulk and Andre, Steamboat and Savage. Yep you guys in the dream team can't forget that very very memorable show exactly yeah
2: and for me and for me it was really experiencing the um, how huge the WWE was well WWF back then but you know WWE how huge it was how the, the magnitude of it I mean I was there talking with Mary Hart that night that does entertainment tonight back then you know And then talking with uh, Bob, you know, talking with Mary Hart, you know, and walking out and, you know, and seeing Aretha Frank and singing the national Anthem and then going out there on those little rings that would bring us to the ring. And you're looking at the crowd. It's like, wow, we were there earlier in the day. You know, Vince wanted everybody early in case, you know, all of a sudden the traffic backs up. You can't get in this and that. And, I was in way before the people who were there. I think it was 10:30 in the morning, and I went up all the way to the top of the building to look at what people would see from the top. And I was like, the ring looked like a you know a little square in the center of this thing that was lost in the immensity of it, you know. And for me, that was like, wow. And then going out that night in there, like I said, it was a humbling experience. But that's where you realize the magnitude
0: of the WWE. So when you look back at your career and even the Rougeau family, because obviously, you know, he's legendary, your father, legend, you're a legend of business, your brother, Jacques. So many people look at him so fondly as a legend in the business. What's kind of the lasting legacy, the stamp on the business that the Rougeau left behind?
2: Uh, Basically, I think hard workers, um, people that respected the business, respected the fans. You know, for me, the word respect always comes back because even in politics now, like last week I did four radio interviews, you know, because uh, they were calling me because of uh, considering running for mayor. And they, the word that comes back, whether it's in wrestling, whether it's in when I was doing the interviews, whether it's in politics, the, the common denominator in that is the word respect. I always respected the fans. I respected the business, I respected the boys, um, and the thing was, you know, when I retired, when I said I just wanted to go home, at that point, I was, I was, because, you know, we were getting injured a lot back then, because of the schedule, I mean, I got, in, I had more injuries in the last four years on the road with the WWE than I did, because of the hectic schedule, and, you know. Crossing the world back and forth, never having time to rest and wrestling with injuries, aggravating them, and then creating another injury because you 're trying to protect that one and at At that point i I started to feel like I want to start being careful i didn 't want to wind up finishing being crippled and wind up in a wheelchair and this and that. I started being aware of the consequences of the business. And I started thinking, okay, I always gave 100%, always. And that's for respect to the fans, because I always said, a fan that buys a ticket, they're hardworking people that paid 100% of the, the value of the ticket. If I don't give 100%, I'm cheating them out of something. And I, I can't do that. So when I, when I came to the point where I was reflecting and leaving the ring is because I was think I need to start to be careful, take less, to start taking less risks to be able to not wind up being crippled later on. And uh, all of a sudden I found myself saying, well, maybe now I should give, you know, I was gonna cut down to 90% just to try to be careful to cut off the excess for the injuries. And that's where i said, nope, I can't do it. I either do it 100% or it's time to go and leave your spot for somebody that will give 100% and even over that, that wants that's waiting for a break. That's where I decided. That's why I left Young in the business, not because I didn't like it. I, I didn't want to cheat the fans out of, being, of giving 100%. So basically, it's the word, like you said, the legacy, I think is respect. And that, that is a word that comes back a lot when if you speak of the boys, to the boys about me, what did they see of Ray? They have respect for me. And that gives me comfort to think of the respect that the boys have for me. You know, you know. Bret Hart told me last summer I, I saw him. Uh, we were at um, not this summer, like a year ago at Summerslam. We were in Toronto. Bret Hart was there. I hadn't seen Brett in a while, and uh, I came to see him. I said, Brett I says, Ray, how are you?" And my partner that does the, the commentating with me, Jean Brassard he says, "Oh, he says, can I get a picture of you two together?" And he put it on his WWE Facebook, you know, and all that. And he says, you know. He says, in this business, he says, if I had to count on one hand, you know, the guys that I respected the most in the business, he says, Ray certainly has one of those spots on that one hand, the guys I respect the most in this business. And Jean told me after this, says, wow, that's a heck of a compliment he gave you. You know, I said, yes. And I said, it's really appreciated. And I told him, I said, "Brett, thank you, I I appreciate that. That's what I want the fans to, to remember. It's just, like I said, the respect that I have for the, the fans, the business, and in return that, you know, I really appreciate that that respect is is brought back.
0: Now, as far as you, do you do social media? Do you have plugs to, to kind of give out or are you kind of more private as far as? And out there yeah I'm
2: more private on that, yeah, I don't really do uh,
0: social media and um I don't
2: have a facebook uh, but next year they were saying if if I go on my political campaign right, you have to have a campaign Facebook, you know Raymond Rougeau from mayor of Facebook and all that I said, okay, okay, you know, but as of now i don't I'm not on Twitter, I'm not on Facebook, I'm not on anything so um, i I've always been a private person, you know I've never been one to uh Chase the spotlight and this and that. You know, I remember one time, you know, my brother likes the spotlight more than I do. And um, yeah, at one point he calls me and he says, hey, Ray, it's a couple of years ago. He says, hey, Ray, he says, there's a TV station. He says, they want us to come down. They want to do an interview and they want to give us a cover in a magazine, you know, a six page spread in a magazine, all that. He said, but we have to go down to Montreal. I live like an hour from Montreal. And I said, no, not doing it. And he says, oh, man, you know, we're going to have six pages in the magazine. I said, if they really want to do it, they'll come up here. They'll send the reporter and their guy up here. They can do the interview here. My brother would have gone down on his hands and knees to do that interview to get that coverage, you know. For me, it was like, (laughs) if they really want to do it, they can come here and do it. And he said, said, you tell them that. If not, I said, well, you can do it alone if you want to go, but I'm not going to Montreal. So, they, they sent the cameraman up here, they sent the reporter up here, and we did the thing. But that's the way I am. I'm, I Like I said, I don't thrive. I don't need that much attention. I appreciate it, and it's welcome, but I don't need it. You know, so that's why, you know, sometimes it's, I get invited to things. I, I pass on a lot of things. You know, I enjoy
0: my privacy. Hey, got to respect that. It's been an awesome, awesome convo with an absolute legend in the wrestling business. And I really wish you good luck in your political career as well. That's uh, awesome to hear. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And like I said, life is a, is a
2: journey. It's a one-way trip and you got to live, you know, as many passions as you can going through right now, like I said, I've been at city hall for 19 years. Well, next year, with my 19th year, my mandate finishes. It's my fifth consecutive term, term you know, so, yeah, I still, I mean, look, I'm, I'm considering running for mayor next election. So if and that's a four-year term. So if I get elected and I'm still at City Hall as the mayor, I'll have been there for 24 years That's an elect official. You know, when you think about it, it's funny. But I'm having a blast. And, hey, life is a great journey. I'm in perfect health. Um, I work out. I'm still at the gym six days a week. I work out average of 25 days a month. So I was there this morning for an hour and 45 minutes working out. I do that every day before I go to City Hall, an hour and 45 in the gym. Then I'll go over to City Hall. My training comes first. <laughs> Pretty it's impressive. Just, that's the way it
0: wow. Is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I could even do that. It. Wow, it's really impressive. Very good. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I'm in, I'm
2: in very good shape, very good shape. In better shape than a lot of people probably at 30 right now.
0: <laughs> there, I guarantee yeah. it for sure. Yep.
2: Yeah. So even like I live on the waterfront. Uh, the lake is a, a, one kilometer it's across the lake in front of me. Some mornings I come down. I'm, like, oh, I'm gonna cross the lake. I go down. And I swim across the lake. And uh, sometimes when I do it, my son will follow me, like on a paddleboard, you know, because you know, in case you know, all of a sudden if you get a cramp or you don't feel well or whatnot, he's, he's paddling next to me and I just swim across and we time ourselves, you know. So I swim across. He'll swim back. But it happened a couple of times where I I crossed the lake, get to the other side. I said, do you mind if I swim back? So, uh, yeah, no problem. So I just turn around and I swim all the way back. So it's like a two-kilometer swim there and back, you know. So I think considering, you know, where I am in my life, I think that's uh, pretty good.
0: No doubt about it. That is very impressive. I love that. (laughs) uh...
2: That's the the lifestyle, though. And, uh, and you know, one thing I'm proud of, I've in my life, I never drank. I never smoked, never did drugs, never took steroids. So if you ask me what my secret is, I'd say part of it is a healthy lifestyle. Uh, I was never one to go out in the bars, never one to go out partying. That's why also I was considered even Vince, Vince's own words. One morning I was having breakfast with him and uh, cause it, I was a commentator and you know, I, I was with Vince a lot because I was doing the interviews like with Hulk and Lex Luger and Undertaker and Paul Bear and Yokozuna. Before the interview, I'd go and spend time with Vince how, and he'd explain how we'd like the interview to go then I'd go prepare my interview, come back see him. When I was ready, he says, you tell me when you're ready. Then he'd call the truck okay, Ray, Ray is ready to do the interview we do it live in the ring and um, but I spent time with him and Vince always respected me and one morning we were at the same hotel, I came down I, and I passed by. I said, "Hey, good morning, Vince." He says, "Good morning, Ray." He says, "Ray, join me for breakfast." I said, "Okay." So we sat and we talked for a while. And uh, he says, "Ray," he says, "You're you're like from another planet in our business. You're," he says, "You're like from outer space. You are so different than anybody else in the business. You know?" He says, "You're like from. It's like you're from another planet." And I said, Vince, thank you. I take that as a compliment. I appreciate that. So he was hmm. like, you were just one of kind. And he told me, he says, I wish I had more guys like you. I said, I appreciate that. Thank you, Vince. You know, but I was always considered um, not like one of the boys. But at the same time, everybody respected me. You know, because I was not one of the boys because I was a, a complete goof or something. I was always the guy like, Take an example on him. Ray invested his money. Ray was buying real estate when he was a a teenager. I bought my first apartment building when I was 19 years old. You know?
0: Wow. And
2: uh, my first piece of land property I bought, I was 17. First, I bought two six-unit apartment buildings when I was 19 years old. How many guys do that? I wasn't partying. I was building my retirement. And by the time I was 34... I, I could afford to retire. I was, you know, I was independent financially at 34 years old, you know? So that everybody respected me for that, but at the same time, they were like, he's not one of the boys, you know? And no, I was not one of the boys. I never partied, never did anything like that. But at the same time, I was always sociable with the guys. When I saw them, I would talk with the guys. And many times guys would come to me for advice, advice on investing, advice on real estate. Uh, Even uh, last year I was on a flight with Sami Zayn, and he says, Ray, he says, I know you invested in real estate. And you know, he said, could you give me some advice? And we spent playing, you know, the trip. And he was proud to tell me, I saw him just before this uh, pandemic started. I was in Philadelphia, I think it was in March or it was at the Royal Rumble in January. But he told me, Ray, I just bought my first apartment building. And I said, I'm proud of you, man. You know, and that was following a conversation we had. And do you remember um Pierre PCO? He Oh yeah, he of him, course. You know, yep. Of well,
0: course.
2: PCO has called me on I'd say five or six occasions asking me for advice on an investment he wanted to uh, make. He says, Ray, I'm looking at this type of investment. What do you think? And I'd ask him information about it, you know, and uh, this and that. And then I'd give him some advice on the the negotiation for the buying. Uh, I said, thanks. I appreciate that. And there again, when he saw in the paper last week, that I was considering running for mayor. He sent me an email and he says, Ray, he says, I always knew that was your place. I always knew one day that, you know, you would be sitting in that chair being the mayor. And he says, you always deserved it. And he said, much respect for you, you know, and I wish you all the best, you know, and you've always been a straight guy and you deserve it. But it's the respect. Like I said, it all comes back to that one word. And that's, that's very important to me. There are two words that are important to me, loyalty and respect. So, And back in the day in WCW, when guys were, you know, jumping ship and that, I was approached to jump ship to be, to do French broadcasting for them. I turned that down and I told them, do never call me again. I said, I'll never double cross Vince. Vince, and I, like I told you that story about when I went through that hard time in 97, I said, I will never double cross Vince. And, uh, I remember because we were in San Antonio, with survivor series, the one that Chuck Norris was at. I, I, I went, I was going down the ramp. My brother had just, uh, jump ship with Pierre, and they were going to WCW. And I remember I was very awkward about that. and I, I, I disapproved, but then again, it's not, I have no so say in what they decide to do. <clears throat> but um, I remember I was going down the ramp in San Antonio. I was doing the live interviews with Vince, uh, for Vince in the ring. And all of a sudden I turned, I see Vince coming down the ramp, and he was with a couple of the, his bookers and stuff, people around him. And as he got there, I said, hey, Vince, how are you doing? He say hey, Ray, how are you? I said, do you have a second? I'd like to talk to you. I said, Vince, I, I said, obviously, you know, my brother and Pierre are going to WCW. He says, yes, I know. And I said, I'm sure that some people around you are going to question my loyalty. They're going to say, Vince, what about Raymond? Can you trust him? And he says, yes, that has been brought up. <laughs> And uh, I said, and there was a big pillar. We were going down. I said, you see that big pillar there? It was probably 10 feet in diameter holding this, this, this second story up. I said, you see that pillar right there? I said, I'm as solid for you as that pillar is to this building right here. And I said, I'm telling you, you never, ever have to doubt my loyalty. And I, I said, I will always be loyal to you, and I will never double cross you. And he gave me a hug. He said, Ray. I really appreciate that, and I wish I had more guys like you. I said, Vince, thank you, and thank you for for the opportunity of being here. That's the type of relationship I had with Vince. So it was the loyalty, you know, and uh, that's why when I saw him 15 years later, he saw me, and gave me a big hug. Ray, I'm so glad to see you. And also, it's funny, after I was gone, you know, we had no more French TV back at one point. I said I was gone from 2002 until uh, 2017 when we started back. Mm -hmm. in 2002 that's when i was approached to run for politics and i went there wwe had a show that late that summer what just we had started our campaign for the election and i knew they were taping in montreal and vince was going to be there so i went down to montreal at the uh, Moulton center not to see the show i wanted to go say hello to vince i hadn't seen him in in a while maybe close to a year i went down just to say Vince. so when i saw him he says ray he was happy to see me. I was happy to see him. I said, what's happening? I said, oh, I'm running for election. I'm going to running for city council. He says, really? He says, Ray, if there's anything I can do for you, you know, if you, want, you guys need a contribution. You need funding. You need anything. You let me know. And whatever you need, he says, I'm there for you. I said, Vince, thank you. I appreciate it. I said, our campaign's doing fine. I don't need anything. I just wanted to share it with you. But thank you for the offer. But he says, Ray, I'm serious. You need anything? You let me know. But uh, it, that's that's the relationship, you know? So that's where the loyalty loyalty created. If anybody who talks to Vince about me, he'll have nothing but respect. And you know one thing? And the last thing I want to say on that. Is, it, these are memories that are coming back all of a sudden. He says, you know, because I was doing a lot of things. I was like his handyman, you know? I was doing the French broadcasting. I was doing the live interviews in English in the ring. I was doing backstage interviews. Uh, one time I was in the studio and Lord Alfred Hayes couldn't be there. and something with his flight. Gorilla Montoon was doing uh, superstars or smack, uh, superstars international back then. It was Lord Alfred Hayes and Gorilla Montoon. Uh, I was in the studio doing French. I was done. I was going to grab a flight home. I said, hey, Ray, he said, uh Lord Alfred Hayes can't make it. Would you mind doing the English International with Monsoon? You know, I said, hey, no problem, you know. And uh, that's the way I was. I enjoyed doing it, you know. I said, hey, no problem. And uh, you know what Vince said to me one day? And that really, really pleased me. Because like I said, I always like to set a high standard to what I do, whether it was wrestling, I always wanted to wrestle, but have a certain class to it. I wanted, In the interviews, I wanted to maintain a certain standard in politics. I'm the same way. And Vince says, you know, Ray, what I like about you? He says, you bring a touch of class to our show. I hmm. said, thank you, Vince. That, for me, that was that touched me. That was very flattering. He says, you bring a touch of class to our show. That's basically the legacy I want to leave. Ray was a classy guy. Ray was polite guy. Ray was a quiet guy. Ray was, you know, a respectful guy. That's, that's what I'd like to leave as a legacy.
0: Well said too, you know, respect and class, which he's definitely right on for sure.
2: Uh, So I think, I think we've covered a lot of stuff right now.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. We went through, definitely went through the gamut of great, great stuff. And I appreciate all the time you gave as well. Thank you so much.
2: It's my pleasure, my pleasure, and uh, I hope it was to your satisfaction.
0: Absolutely. Like I said, good luck with the political career. I I hope it uh, all pans out, and hopefully we're calling you Mr. Mayor soon.
2: Okay. Well, we'll find out next year. The the election is uh, November uh, 7th, 2021. So, like I said, my my reflection before I make my official decision is until September. But you know, when you when you start talking about it publicly, a lot of your uh, your reflection is already done. It's just I w- basically when I came out publicly with it, what I wanted to see was the uh, public reaction. If you know, basically that's like a test. You come out, and then if people are like, "Wow, yes, please," you say, "Okay, there's a very positive vibe to it." If you come out and you know people see you and they just oh hello and you keep going it's like okay maybe you think you're you're going to the right place but maybe uh, the public does not think you're going to the right place but uh, so far this was out last week in the uh, Montreal paper and actually it went everywhere because I got like I said I did four radio shows in three days and you know <laughs> it's it's been crazy the the fan reception here I mean the public reception here. Has been overwhelming. I'm on my boat on the lake, just you know, going along. So many people are passing. They slow down. They're waving, Mr. Rousseau. Yes, if you go, you can count on our roads we will be for you. And other people are saying, like, please do it. You know, you you're the person we see there. You know, it's been a long time coming. and That it's been unanimous. So, and even if with the employees at City Hall. They're like, all smiles. Oh, Mr. Russo, we're so happy. We hope that's what you decide to do. It would be so reassuring for us. Because I've been the deputy mayor for eight years. So for them, it was like, when the mayor's on vacation, he's gone for two weeks. I'm I'm the acting mayor for the three weeks. You know, it'll be eight years I've been the deputy mayor. So they know when he's gone, it's not like I'm going to come over and turn everything inside out and fire people left and right. No, we're the one that built the administration that's there. And, we, you know, I'm very happy with the way things are going. So for them, it's like a smooth continuance. It's like, yes, that would be so securing for us, you know. That's the reception I've been giving. And like I said, as far as the public goes, it's been overwhelming. So it, it's, it's flattering. And for me, it's, you know, an election is like your report card. If, you've been, if you did a good job, they'll reelect you. If you did not go do a good job, they're going to send you home. And so far, like I said, it's been five consecutive elections that I've been there. And if I choose to go to the one next year for the mayor, mayor, you know, being the mayor, it'll be my sixth consecutive election. So, you know, I think that that speaks for itself. And one thing I've always said is the day that I'm not in politics anymore in my city here, I will always be a citizen and I will cross paths with all these citizens. So I, I always want to do well, live up. To the expectations, live up to the standards, and the word respect comes back live up to the respect that is due of that position that seat you're taking. So when I leave the day I choose not to to remain in politics and I cross people, I would like them to say to be able to feel comfortable and say, "Hey hello, Mr. usual, How are you? Thank you for the nineteen years or if I run for mayor, it'll be twenty four years." that you you've been in public office thank you really appreciate everything
0: you've done i feel
2: yes mission accomplished you know i did what i hoped i
0: would do awesome and it's been such an honor to get you on especially uh, for the length of time i really appreciate that too it's just awesome yep. going down memory lane with you i mean it's just unbelievable and it's <laughs> great to hear that you're uh you're know, still staying in such great shape and uh, dominating the yep. political world so great to hear good stuff
2: I appreciate it. Thank you for having me, and, uh,
0: hey, best of luck to your
2: your project also.
0: Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling. What the world is downloading. The
3: World Wrestling Federation. For over 50 years, the revolutionary force in sports entertainment.